The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And you see our scripture reference behind me on the screen. You see that beautiful banner that says, Headed for Heaven. And isn't it a wonderful thing to be God's child, to be a part of the Lord's church and know that you're going to the place that God has prepared for us? You know, there's never a Christian who lives and dies thinking that there is a possibility that somehow he's going to miss heaven. Next week when I begin the message, I'll give you a few scriptures about that, about the sure hope that we have. But our hope in Christ is absolutely sure, so sure, it's as if it already happened. So you never have to think as a child of God, there might be some case, there may be a possibility that I'll miss going to heaven when I die. That can't happen if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this chapter, the Apostle John describes the beautiful city that God has prepared for those that are a part of the Lord's church. And as I mentioned before, you, you can't really afford to overlook the Lord's church. Because if you want to have a part in this beautiful city that God has prepared, you need to be a member of the Lord's church because this is the eternal home that he's promised, uh, the special place that he's promised for those who know him in the church relationship. The church is the bride of Christ. She is part of his flesh and of his blood. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. He is her loving husband. He says that he is her bridegroom. And this city that he prepared for us is where he lavishes the very best that he has upon those that are his bride. Now, none of the Old Testament believers had that privilege. When they were living, they didn't know anything about the church. The church is a New Testament revelation, and uh, it was a mystery unknown to them. And then it wasn't revealed until men like the Apostle Paul, of course, Jesus himself teaching it, and then Paul giving us the doctrines of a church, uh, the church wasn't here until Christ came, and when he, he chose out the first men who would be his church, and that was the apostles, and so they were the foundation of a new work that God started. And in this new work, God gives salvation not just to Jews alone, but to all the world. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ can be a part of this, and that is of his church, and he's the bridegroom of that church. Well, now we have an opportunity in these scriptures to see this place where we will live when Christ comes to take us home to be with him. Now, it's truly great to be a believer in any place and in any time. It's great for you to be a believer right now. There's nothing, nothing that can be better than that. But I would urge you not to stop with just belief in Christ, not stop with just your salvation, but to commit yourself to the Lord's church. That's a necessary thing if you're going to live in this particular place that God has promised because it seems that even though all believers will be able to enter in and out of this city that's in heaven, yet it's prepared for especially those that are in the church. They're the ones that will have residence in this city. Others that are saved, they'll go in and out of it. They'll live on the earth, on a new earth that God creates, and it's spectacular in its own right. But nothing matches the city that God has prepared for the bride. Now, last week we took a little bit of time to 
read all of these verses from 9, verse 9 down through verse 27. We won't do that today. But instead, just keep your Bibles open, if you would, to the passage. And we're going to read verses 9 through 11. And that will be the text for the message today. Revelation 21, verse number 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now here is the vision of the Apostle John of this city called the New Jerusalem. And he saw this city descending out of heaven, which tells us that the city itself is not the entirety of heaven. This is a city that has definite dimensions. It has a wall that surrounds it. It has gates that go into it. People are allowed to enter there. It has streets. It has a river that runs through it. It is a massive city, but it's not as big as the entirety of heaven itself. Heaven is a vast place. Uh, it's not as big as the new earth that God creates. But this is a massive city. It's bigger than anything that we've ever seen before on this earth, and it's large enough to accommodate God's people and God's purpose for his church as a place where they're going to dwell throughout eternity. Now, in verse number 9, John met an angel who was his tour guide, and he showed him the place of his home. And that's because John was a part of the church. John was one of the original apostles of the church. So this is his new home that he's, that he's looking at in this scripture. He's a part of the church of the living God. Now, our first observation about the city was about angels. This is what we talked about last week, and that is the angels of the city. Hebrews says that the angels are innumerable. There are so many that you wouldn't want to stop to take time to count them all. They are the administrative personnel of heaven. Each of them is a spirit that serves God's people in his kingdom. Now, contrary to what many people believe, angels are not gods. Angels are not semi-gods, demi-gods, or anything like that. Um, angels are not to be worshipped as gods. God doesn't want us to worship them. Uh, he doesn't want us to worship them now, and we won't worship them then. In fact, we are strictly forbidden to bow to an angel, to speak to an angel in worship, to pay homage to an angel. Now, if you look in the next chapter, at verses 8 and 9, you can see that demonstrated. Uh, in, verse, in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel that showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. If you could see an angel right now, if he appeared in this room now, he would not let you worship him. He would not let you worship him. Even that's the greatest sight you've ever seen. You'd be amazed. You'd sit down in awe, fall down in awe. I don't know. You don't worship angels. God does not want them to be worshipped. Now, an evil angel, that's different. He wants to be worshipped. These angels of God don't want to be. They don't want to steal any glory away from God. But an evil angel's not concerned with that. He doesn't care if he takes away God's glory. 
And so they don't care anything at all about breaking the command that we're to worship God alone. But this is something that God strictly forbids, that we would worship anything that is in the heavens. No heavenly hosts are to be worshipped but God Himself. That's the commandment that God gives. Bow only to Him, worship Him alone. Well, John was stunned by what he saw. Couldn't believe what he saw. He saw this beautiful sight. And this angel was a reflection of God's glory and he was overwhelmed with it. And so he fell down before this angel and the angel immediately stopped him. And he said, don't do it. Don't worship me. I'm a servant of God just like you. Remember, it was an angel that wanted to be worshipped that caused the whole mess that we're in today. There was an angel who said, I will exalt myself above the stars of God. I will be worshipped. It was an angel who said to Jesus, if you will fall down before me and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You know who that angel was. That's Lucifer, the old serpent called Satan. And Jesus said to him, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. So anyone that tells you to pray to an angel... To bow to an angel, to worship an angel is a liar and a deceiver. He is an antichrist. He defies the authority of the Almighty God. And we need to be reminded of that because that's something Satan is always trying to get people to do. Worship something other than God. Set up anything else, but God is the thing to be worshipped. God strictly forbids that, and yet people do it all the time. You find it in the statues and the idols of priests and popes that are just a little ways away from this church. Well, there are thousands upon thousands of angels in heaven. Verse number 12 says that there are angels at the gates of the city. And those angels are there to remind us of God's promise that no harm can ever come to us. God doubly protects us when we get to heaven. He'll destroy Satan and all of his followers. We don't have to worry about them. But then he also has these angelic sentinels that are standing at the gates to remind us of God's everlasting care. Verse number 27 says that no one is going to be allowed into the city but those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. That tells us that heaven is an exclusive place. Only the redeemed, only those purchased by the blood of Christ are going to be there. And we ought to note that because it is stated so many times in the Scripture. I keep emphasizing that. Every time that we have a sermon about heaven, I keep telling you this over and over and over again, that the only way that people are going to get to heaven is by Jesus Christ. The only person that will ever step through the gates of the city must be a believer in Jesus Christ. There isn't another way. Now, at this point that we're reading here, there, there are nobody but believers that are in a position to enter heaven. And so these angels just remind us of that promise that God gives. They never will enter. And then I think here's another thing that should be emphasized. You don't have to wait to go to heaven to realize God's protection. He works on your behalf every day. If you are a believer in Him, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God is working for your benefit all of the time to keep you from falling from your salvation. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul said, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Then we had this great promise at the end of Romans chapter 8, 
where the same apostle says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ keeps us from falling. When you're saved, you are saved forever. And that's because God never leaves the protection of your soul to you. You could lose it. If you were in charge, you would lose it tomorrow. You'd lose it in the next hour if you were in charge of your salvation. God is the one who keeps it. He protects us himself. And so there's not any need for us to worry about our salvation. Well, now we move on to verse number 10. And here John says, The angel carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So the angel took John up on a high mountain to show him the city. Well, this, this couldn't be a mountain that's on this present earth. We, we could see that by looking at the dimensions of the city. There is no mountain that is as high as this city. So this is something otherworldly that he's talking about. But in some way, somehow, the angel got John up to a vantage point where he could look down into the city and see the spectacular sights that were in it. Now here, then, is where we begin a description of what this city is like. This is our second observation. We'll spend some time on this in the next couple of weeks. That is the appearance of the city. And I want you to notice the first thing that catches John's attention. This is first. It is always first. Nobody is going to miss this as the first thing that will be seen when you get to heaven. That's verse number 11. Having the glory of God. The New Testament is engulfed in, or the New Jerusalem rather, is engulfed in the glory of God. I think that San Francisco is one of the most beautiful cities that I've ever seen. I love to fly into San Francisco at night, and there you see the lights on the Bay Bridge and the orange glow off the towers of the, of the Golden Gate, the, the, the lights of the city that are twinkling beneath. I mean, these are sights that are iconic. Uh, you see them on postcards, on magazine covers. It's a beautiful city from above. But when that airplane lands... It's different. When it lands in the airport, things are different. Things are transformed to the ugliness that's seen on the ground. Now, I'm not talking about the physical aspects of when you walk into the airport, because maybe as airports go, that might be one of the nicest that you'll ever fly into. The ugliness of it is the humanity of the place. The further that you walk into it, the further you begin to get opened up to all kinds of despicable things. The airport is only a taste of that. Strange things go on in the SFO. Have you ever noticed that before? There are some strange people there. But you get out of the airport and you venture further into the city and what you want to do is you want to close your eyes. Put, something, put a hood over your head. Don't look because there's all kinds of despicable things that happen on every street corner in San Francisco. And I'm not saying that we're any better than anybody there. I mean, none of us are anything except by the grace of God. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. But the cities of this world are a horrible place. The humanity, the sin that goes on in our cities. Now, I'm sure that the Apostle John had seen magnificent cities in his time. Uh, in the ancient Roman Empire, 
There were beautiful cities. Ephesus would have been one of those. Uh, John spent a lot of time at Ephesus, and there was a beautiful temple to Diana that was built there, and it was one of the wonders of the world in those days. When Paul was in Athens, he was on Mars Hill, and he was standing in the shadow of the great Parthenon in the city of Athens. But there were also hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of temples, every idol that you could imagine. There were altars and idols to creeping things. Everything the mind can imagine was there. And then ancient cities were fraught with things like waste management problems. Not just human waste, but animal waste. Their transportation were horses and donkeys. And when you put the fuel in them, it doesn't come out... Well, anyway, uh, you know, it leaves you with mountains of stuff that you've got to get rid of. And these cities, they were just teeming with all of that. Just ugly places, smelly places. The city themselves, the buildings, they're great, they're grand, but nobody would ever call one of those cities glorious. But thank God you get to heaven, there are none of those problems. Everything there is clean and bright. Everything is polished and sparkling. I know that my wife's going to love it. There are no carpets to clean. When you get there, 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 uh, uh, there's no dust mop that you have to use. There, there are no scrubbing bubbles when you get to heaven. Everything is clean and bright. Why? Because of glory. Because of God's glory. Heaven is a reflection of God's glory. Now let's take a look at this for just a few minutes. What is the glory of God? The glory of God. Well, the visual representation of glory is spoken of in only one way in the Scriptures. God's glory is light. Now, God's glory is actually everything that God is. It's all of His attributes. It's everything that makes Him God. His glory is what separates Him from all of His creatures that are beneath Him. In 1 Timothy, Paul wrote about God And he said, God is the only one who has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. God's glory is what keeps you away from Him. You're never going to be able to see God, to enter into the presence of God, unless God makes a change in you. You can't see God's glory. You're never able to approach Him. He's in a light that is unapproachable. Now, when God created the world, the first thing He said was, let there be light. And that light was the first representation that God exists and that God is glorious. When when they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, the glory of God filled it. When they had finished putting all things together, had put everything into the tabernacle, then God came into it. The glory of God filled it so that the people, the priests, were not able to enter in to the tabernacle. They waited outside because God's glory had filled the entire place. But then God concentrated His glory in a very small light that was in the Holy of Holies that was above the uh, mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, and that was called the Shekinah. Well, that's one of the things that about the tabernacle and the temple that's just fascinating to me. I, I would love... I think I would love to have been an Old Testament priest to go in there and see the glory of God. Can you imagine that? Being able to see that light, which is the glory of God? It's hard for me to understand how that 
Israel got so far off in their worship that they profaned the worship of the holy God until God said, I'm going to shut out that light. And he took the light away from the temple. And that was important because when God shut out that light, it meant God is no longer there. This is what Shekinah means. It's not a word that we find in the Old Testament. It's a transliteration of a word that means to dwell. So God was dwelling in that light. And when there is no light there, that means God is not there. So this was a terrible thing to happen for God to shut out that light. God was not dwelling with His people if the light is not there. Now if you look at our text, and you go back to verse number 3 in this chapter, what does it tell us there? It says that God dwelled with His people. He is dwelling among His people. Now we go down to verse number 11, and how do we see the evidence that God is dwelling with His people? Light. The glorious light is there. That's how we know that God is there. It's the glory of God. Now you put all of that together, and the brilliance of that light is dancing all around the crystal in, in, in heaven, reflecting off of the shining golds of the street. The glory of God shows that God dwells there. Now it's interesting that in the popular books that are written by people who say that they died and they went to heaven, they came back to tell us what it's all about, that they never talk about being overwhelmed with how much light there is there. Nobody talks about being overwhelmed with the glory of God, the light of God in the place. Let me read to you what John MacArthur said on this subject. Uh, he's writing about uh, making a comment on the book, Heaven is for Real. Uh, a movie was made about that about two years ago. This is what MacArthur says. He said, we live in a narcissistic culture, and it shows in these accounts of people who claim they've been to heaven. They sound as if they viewed paradise in a mirror, keeping themselves in the foreground. They say comparatively little about God or His glory, but the glory of God is what the Bible says fills, illuminates, and defines heaven. Instead, the authors of these stories seem obsessed with details like how good they felt, how peaceful, how happy, how comforted they were, how they received privileges and accolades, how fun and enlightening their experience was, and how many things they think they now understand perfectly that could never be gleaned by the Scriptures alone. In short, they glorify self while barely noticing God's glory. They highlight everything but what's truly important about heaven. Maybe some of you have read those books. Maybe you have some sitting at the, in your, on your shelf at home. A few weeks ago, there was a visitor that asked me as he was leaving, he said, what do you think about the book, Heaven is for Real? And uh, I haven't actually read the book. I've read others like it, and I found it was a total waste of time, so I had no interest in reading it. But he said, what do you think about the book, Heaven is for Real? And I just said, not much. And I think it must have upset him. He didn't turn around, didn't say a word to me, walked away from me. And I think that the reason that people do this is because most Christians are very poor at discerning the truth. And so what they do is they suck up all these kinds of fantasy tales. These kinds of things interest them. And the proof of the silliness of it all is what we find in God's Word. I mean, why do we need more than God's Word to tell us about God's revelation. Why do I need what man said to make me believe in God in heaven or that there is a heaven, that heaven is real? I don't need that. I've got the Word of God to tell me that. And what is more valuable than the Word of God? 
So you wonder, why doesn't God's glory dominate these books if they're true? Well, let's consider for just a moment what consumed the thoughts of Peter, James, and John when they saw only just a very, very small glimpse of God's glory. This was in Matthew 17 at the Transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth him up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. Now this is just a peak of God's glory shining through Christ. His face became as bright as the sun. And that light was so brilliant they couldn't look at him. They must have shielded their eyes because you can't look into the brightness of the sun, can you? You can't look directly at the sun. They couldn't do it. And this glory that Christ shone, uh, the glory shining from him impressed them. And they returned to that over and over again as they thought about Christ. John talked about it in John chapter 1 and in 1 John 1. And he said, And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And so the first thing that John wanted to talk about before he talked about anything else is Christ and his glory. In Revelation chapter 1, as he begins the revelation, he wrote that the countenance of Christ was as the sun in its strength. And you read more there, and you see that his eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like, are like fine brass refined in a furnace. And then we read what Peter said. Uh, he was also there, and he said, For he, he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The glory of God captivated these men. Paul also experienced his glory. How did he see it? Well, he was on the road to Damascus. And Paul described it as a light that shined on him, shining out of heaven. And Jesus spoke to him out of that light. And he said that it was above the brightness of the sun. Then we have another description in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Matthew 24, 27, Jesus said, For as lightning, as lightning cometh, out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew twenty five thirty one. When the Son of Man shall come, shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he be. Uh, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now there, Jesus is telling us lightning shining from the east and the west. That's how quickly it happens. But also that we see brilliant light when he comes in his glory. It's a like a brilliant light that shines from one end of the earth to the other, the glory of God when Jesus returns. And then the Apostle John said in 1 John 1, 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God doesn't reflect light. God doesn't bear a light. God doesn't hold up a light. God is light. Darkness is contrasted with light, meaning that there's nothing negative about God. You can't walk in darkness and fellowship with God because God's presence dispels darkness. And I hope that you get that. If you walk with God, you are always going to be in the light. It's impossible to walk with Him and walk in darkness. You can't do it. What does that mean? You can't walk with God when you live in sin. 
You can't walk with God that way. Now, you can pretend that you do, and you can be a church member that says, oh, I'm all holy, and I'm, I'm walking with God. But if you have a cloud of darkness over you, and there is sin in your life, you're not walking with God because you can't walk in the light and be with God. He dispels all darkness. You can't walk without light. You can't walk in darkness and be with God. He dispels all of that darkness. The Scripture says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And all of that points up to the fact that there can be no sin in heaven. The brightness of God is there, and you can't go to heaven until every sin is gone. And that's what happens when sin is washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. All sin is gone. Now, if you look at verse number 23, you can see what the brightness of God's glory does to heaven. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Now this is next. The Lamb is the light. What is that light of heaven? The Lamb is the light. Now amazingly, another book about dying and going to heaven is nine, the book 90 Minutes in Heaven. Maybe some of you have seen that one. Don Piper wrote that book. He's supposed to be a Baptist preacher. And in this book, he mentions Jesus... Now, now, get me now. He's a man that died and went to heaven. And in his book, he mentions Jesus three times. And one of those mentions was, I didn't see Jesus. I went to heaven, but I didn't see Jesus. Now, can you imagine going to heaven and not seeing Jesus? The Lamb is the light of the city. It would be impossible to be, to be there without being dominated by the presence of Jesus. Now, here's something that I want you to get about this verse, too. How many times have we used the Scriptures to prove that Jesus is God? Do you know you still have a lot of people that run around with Christian on the name of their church, and they claim that, well, no, Jesus wasn't really God. He's not really God. But you see what this says? The glory of God lightens the city, and then it says the Lamb is the light thereof. Do you need a flow chart to understand that? Do you, do you need one? God is light. Christ, the Lamb, is light. What does that make Christ? God. And that's a statement that He is God. Now, two things stand out here. Nobody can say that Jesus is not God. And nobody's ever going to get to heaven without God. Can you imagine that could happen? Can you imagine for a moment that anyone would ever be in heaven and, and without knowing God and denying God? So you deny Jesus Christ, you can't go to heaven. You can't be where he is. That's what the verse says. How are you going to get to heaven without God? Now the Lamb is the brilliant light of the city. So there isn't a need of any other light. Nothing is brighter than the glory of God. This is what Isaiah wrote. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, thy God and thy God, thy glory. That's God speaking, and that perfectly matches what John saw when the angel showed him the new Jerusalem. Now, if there is a sun, a moon, and the stars, which I suspect there will be because God's going to create a new universe, these new lights that he creates are superfluous. You don't really need them. The, the light filled, that fills the place is the glory of God. That's the brightest light that's possible, so why do you need another light? Heaven doesn't need PG&E. It doesn't need solar panels. There's plenty of light that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at this next description. 
and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. This verse shows us that the city is clear as crystal. Now, in John's view of the city, it appeared to him as a brilliant light that was shining through crystal. He says it's like a jasper stone. Now, the jasper that he's talking about is not jasper like we know it today. Uh, The jasper stone today is an opaque stone. So this is not opaque, so this is more likely what he's referring to as a diamond that the city appears as a huge, sparkling diamond. Now, we we need Jason Gurritz here today to explain to us the clarity of diamonds. He's an expert on those sort of things. And I think that he would agree with his statement that the clearer a diamond is, the more valuable it is. I found this description about clarity in diamonds. Clarity is the measure of how clearly a diamond is able to allow a light to pass through it, reflect off of it, and refract within it. This light quality is determined by a number of factors, one of which is the level of flaws, both internal and external. The internal flaws are referred to as inclusions, and the external flaws are known as blemishes, with inclusions more often being the more detrimental of the flaws. All diamonds contain features or flaws such as mineral inclusions and fractures, and most flaws can be so slight as to have no effect on the diamond's ability to transmit and scatter light. However, larger flaws and large grouping of flaws can diminish the ability of the light to shine through the diamond unimpeded. Now, I want you to listen to this next statement because I'm going to come back to this. The location and coloration of the flaw has tremendous impact on the diamond's overall clarity. If a flaw is located near the center of a diamond and it's dark in color, it will often be more detrimental to the diamond's clarity than a clear flaw closer to the diamond's edge. Now that's what we might call the doctrine of diamonds. And uh, if that statement is heresy, then we'll discuss that with Jason to find out if this is diamondology that comes from a demonic jeweler. I'm just not sure, but we do want to find the truth of this. Uh, We want to discern the truth. Now, the clarity of diamonds, though, affords us a great opportunity to talk about Jesus. Everything in the New Jerusalem is about Jesus. Now, this statement says that internal flaws are the most serious, and it's flaws that are at the center of the diamond that are the most serious of all. Those flaws are known as inclusions, and they keep light from refracting clearly through the diamond. Now, let's think about Jesus for a minute. He is the center of the New Jerusalem. Jesus is always at the center. Everything is about Him. Everything revolves around Him. All things flow out from Him. Jesus is never on the outside of anything. He's never on the outside. He's always the focus. When He is there, He's always the focus. When Israel built the tabernacle that I talked a moment ago, when they set up their camp, the tabernacle was always dead center of the camp. And that's because God's always the focus. The presence of God there is always the focus. Now in heaven, Jesus is always the center of attention. And why is that? There's nobody like him. He's perfect. This is what the scripture says. Isaiah 53 verse 9. And he hath made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 John 3.5 And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. 1 Peter 2.21 and 22 For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin? Neither was guile found in his mouth. Now here's the point that I want to make of this. Jesus has no inclusions. He has no inclusions. He's the perfect diamond. There's no flaw in him. The light that comes from him is perfect in clarity. This city shines and it's dazzling because the source of its light is perfect. No one who ever lived is like Jesus. Now we notice there in that last scripture that I read that Peter said that Christ left us an example to follow, that we are to follow in his steps. What does that mean? Stay away from sin. You're going to follow him, walk in his steps, do what he did, stay away from sin. Isn't that what he called you to do? Is there an excuse to sin when your example is perfect? Is there an example or an excuse for you to lie when your example is perfect? Is there an excuse for you to curse when your example is perfect? Is there an excuse for any imperfection in you if your example is perfect? God makes no allowances. God expects for His people to be impeccable. Even though everything and everyone turned against Jesus, He never spoke an evil word. Even when His most trusted disciples turned against Him, He said, let's do this thing again and let's get it right. And doesn't he do the very same thing for you? Hasn't he always done that for you? How many times have you failed him? How many times have I failed him? And yet, he picks us up every time. He is the perfect diamond of our salvation. He's the perfect light. There is no darkness in him. Never a flaw. Heaven shines with the radiance of his glory. And when the brightest light shines on him, it never exposes a flaw. Oh, we don't like bright lights to shine on us, do we? You shine that bright light and every imperfection is seen. I go into our, to our bathroom at home and my wife has one of those lighted mirrors that sits there on the, on the counter. And when she's got the lighted mirror on, then I know, better stay away from that part because that means she stripped the makeup off and all the imperfections are seen. So she's in there busy with the light on to see the imperfections so we get them all covered up. And when you see her, you can tell her I said this about her. She doesn't really need the makeup at all because she doesn't have any imperfections, according to me at least. So anyway, and you tell her I said that. You be sure that you tell her I said that. <laughs> Don't forget that. Let, let me make this last point today. The new Jerusalem shines with the glory of God. And in verse number two, we see that Jerusalem is adorned as a bride for her husband. Now, the, the city is glorious because of Christ and also because of his people. Now, that's a special thing that God does. Uh, it's not only glorious because of Christ, but it's glorious also because of his people. And they are glorious because Christ made them that way to be a perfect reflection of his glory. It's like having a diamond necklace with a stunning, brilliant diamond at the center and smaller, equally clear stones that surround it. 
Christ is that centerpiece. He's the perfect diamond in the center. And surrounding him are these other perfect stones. Malachi 3.17 says, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. Our beauty accents his beauty. Now, he doesn't need us for him to be perfectly beautiful. No doubt. No doubt. He doesn't need us. But he added us. He added us to his wardrobe because when we look good, he looks better. How? Well, we accent his mercy, his love, and his grace because we were made to give him glory. We're made to give him glory. We're perfect as he is perfect. You know an interesting word for that? What is it when a Christian becomes perfect in heaven? He is what? Glorified. We call it the doctrine of glorification. So we become like Christ. We're perfect as he is perfect. What, what a way to describe us. Can you imagine this? Glorified. We are partakers of his divine glory. It's inconceivable that God would do that for us. Daniel 12.3 says, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Jesus said, Matthew 13, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. We shine. We shine. What is the light? It's God's glory. I don't think we'll ever fully grasp that this side of heaven. We don't really understand what that will mean to be made just like Christ, to be glorified. Someday there's a day of reckoning. One of these days, God's going to settle all accounts. He says the righteous will shine as lights in the glory of heaven. Now, I don't have time to go into this, um, to explain it all. But Jesus gave a parable about this, the parable of the ten virgins. They weren't ready for Christ to come. They had no oil in their lamps. They had no way to produce light. They, they were not ready when the bridegroom came. They wasted their time. They tarried. They slept. When the bride, bridegroom came, they had no oil. There was no light. And so the bridegroom said to them, You can't come in here. Go away. I don't know you. You know, there's a lot of people that are going to face that when Jesus comes. They have no light. When he comes... He's going to say to them, go away. I don't know you. you. You have no light. Stay away from here. Have you failed to prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord by faith in Him? Have you failed to be the shining light that He wants you to be? The light that He sets up to draw people to Himself? The light of His glory that shines from you as you're a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He can do for people? Are you ready for Jesus, or are you lost in the darkness? Have you not stepped into that marvelous light of Jesus Christ? Just listen to this quote, and I'll close. This is from John Gill. There are such who are wise, or they are such who are wise unto salvation, who not only know the scheme of it, but are sensible of their need of it, apply to Christ for it, venture their souls on him, and commit them to him. They trust in his righteousness for justification, in his blood for pardon, in his sacrifice for atonement, in his fullness for daily supplies, in his grace and strength to perform every duty and expect eternal life in and from him. They know him, prize him, and value him as their Savior. Rejoice in him 
and give him all the glory. Is that you? Are you, are you sensible to your need of Christ? Have you applied to him? Have you ventured your soul on him? Have you gone to him for the blood atonement? Have you been pardoned by your faith in him? Do you give him all of the glory? Those are very important questions, extremely important. And that's because Jesus is the one and only, faithful, true, and holy. The scripture says, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Give God all the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now with these questions on our mind. Have we given you the glory that you deserve? Have we committed ourselves to you? Are we Christians that live for the glory of God? Are we walking in darkness when the light is supposed to dispel all the darkness that is in us? Are we fooling ourselves by saying that we are believers in you and yet our lives never show it on a daily basis? That we can get into all kinds of sins that there are, talk in any way we want, our habits are bad. Lord, is that the way we are? Are we not reflecting the glory of God so that others can see Jesus in us? If not, then there's great danger that we haven't actually escaped the darkness at all. That we really haven't trusted you as Savior if there hasn't been a change that's been made in us. And so, Lord, I ask for every person here that's dabbling in sin, that can live in it every day, to question very deeply whether they've ever recognized the glory of God. Then I pray for those today who make no pretenses or make no mistake in this, that they know that they don't know you as Savior. They've never made a profession of faith. They've never said that you are their God and they've trusted Jesus to wash them clean of all of their sins. Lord, until that happens, according to your word, they'll never see the glory of God. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to some heart today. Let your Holy Spirit open their eyes to see God in His glory, to see Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous one. And may they make application to Him to come and receive Him by faith. Lord, speak to hearts today. We pray for it. Maybe there's not a single person here today who doesn't know you as Savior, but I do know this. None of us give, it, give you all the glory that you deserve. May we leave here today with that resolve in our heart. We want to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.